So here's the question. What is the single most definitive sign that you are truly a believer in Jesus? Meaning, what is the single most important sign or evidence that you have truly come to faith and are actually trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life? What sign would that be? Well, to answer that question, I want to remind you that we do live in the location of the first great awakening, which many agree was the greatest movement of God in the history of our country. In fact, 1734, the faithful gospel preaching of Jonathan Edwards sparked revival that started in Northampton and made its way down to Springfield and Suffield, Enfield, and Windsor. According to Edwards' book, The Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, he records that over 300 people came to faith in Christ in six months, just in his local church. And historian Michael Haken estimates that 20% of New England was converted during the First Great Awakening. So somewhere between 25,000 and 50,000 people, which is absolutely incredible. But here's why that's so important. Because Edwards was the pastor in the middle of all those conversions. So the man who saw them spoke to them, interviewed them, and watched their lives radically change as a result of God's great work of redemption. And then he wrote a book about it called Religious Affections, where he says, and I quote, that godly practice, so obedience to God's commands, is the chief sign of God's grace at work in a person's life. And that true faith causes a person to be universally obedient, which doesn't mean they're sinless, but that their obedience extends both to the avoidance of all sins as well as to the practice of all virtues. And that true Christians persevere in that obedience all the way to the end of their lives. So Edwards, the man who saw all these conversions, declares the most definitive sign that a person has truly come to faith in Christ is their obedience to God's commands, which is exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning, that obedience is required. So let me appeal to you right now to not be afraid to ask yourself the hard question this morning. Is my life characterized by obedience to God's commands, diligently avoiding sin and joyfully practicing righteousness? Because the Bible says without holiness, without obedience, no one will see the Lord. Important question for us to answer this morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. also encourage you to grab my outline from your bulletins. 1 Samuel chapter 12 is on page 233. As you're turning, let me remind you that we're looking at the life of Saul again this morning, who Richie argued last week is an unworthy king. Yet God works through him to conquer the Ammonites, chapter 11. 
So Samuel calls the people up to Gilgal to have a covenant renewal service, meaning God's going to remind the people and their king what's required for things to go well for them. Not just in life, but for all eternity. So if you would, follow along as I read, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So he's clearly talking about the Exodus, right? That's what he's looking all the way back to Exodus. And what's the sin? Look at verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. And as a result, God sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Now, when did that happen? Well, that's Judges chapter 4. So Samuel is skipping through Israel's history here. But why is he skipping through their history? Well, to highlight their consistent sin of forgetting God and forsaking the Lord their God. Verse 10, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. So despite their consistent sin, God graciously delivers them from their enemies. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now when did this thing with Nahash happened. 1 Samuel chapter 11. This just happened. Nahash the Ammonite went up to Jabesh Gilead to destroy them. And the only terms of peace that he gave them, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2, look at it, was if he gouged out everyone's right eye to bring disgrace upon the people. But the people wanted a king like all the other nations. Chapter 8, verse 20, that would judge them, go out before them, and fight their battles. So God gave them a king. And yet, let me ask you this question. Who won the battle with Nahash and the Ammonites in chapter 11? I mean, even Saul's clear about that. Look at chapter 11, verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. Because today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So why the covenant renewal ceremony in chapter 12? Because of Israel's constant sin of forgetting and forsaking the Lord their God, who is the one and only king over Israel, who rules and reigns and delivers them. He's the one who delivers them from all their enemies. 
Which brings us to verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if you and notice the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. Now, what does Samuel do to make sure that the people really get what he's talking about here? That they actually understand just how sinful they really are and just how gracious God really is. Well, to get their attention, he calls down thunder and lightning in the midst of the dry season. So the time of year when it never rains, verse 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? You read your Bibles, you have no idea what that means. Wheat harvest is the dry season. It never rains during the wheat harvest, ever. Yet, look at what it says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord. Notice, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins. All of our sins all the way back from Exodus, all the way up to 1 Samuel chapter 11, all our sins, this specific evil that we have asked for ourselves, a king. Now I want you to see God's infinite grace. Because the people are crystal clear, aren't they? They have sinned against the Lord their God, forgetting him and forsaking him. And for that, they know that they deserve God's wrath. They deserve to die. I mean, that's what the storm is all about, right? It's a reminder of the reality of God's judgment. So God will absolutely judge those who disobey his word. That's the whole point of verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commandments, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. So God's judgment against those who do not obey God's commands. And yet God's constant time after time, since Exodus, time after time, never failing, offer of grace. Look at verse 20. And Samuel said, do not be afraid. For even though you have done all this evil, notice how he knows about all the evil. It's not without the knowledge of the evil. Do not be afraid for even though you have done all this evil, yet as you move forward, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. So please listen to me when I say to you, judgment is coming for all those who disobey God's commands. Because God is a just God and will absolutely judge his enemies. But God also offers infinite grace. Grace that is greater than all your sin. But only to those who repent and believe in him demonstrated most clearly in following him. Obeying him. 
and joyfully keeping his commands and living for his glory with all your heart. One last point before we move on. Let me just ask, how is this infinite grace extended to such wicked and evil sinners who constantly struggle with forgetting and consistently forsaking the Lord their God? That's C, Samuel's role as mediator. Look again at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. My goodness, could it be more clear? That God rules and God reigns over his people, but that he does so through a mediator, through Samuel at this point in scripture, a prophet who speaks God's word to God's people, calling them to put away their false gods and to serve him only. But he's also a priest interceding on their behalf, constantly praying to God for them that God might save them. Look at verse 23. Samuel says, far be it for me that I should sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. So constant, unwavering, unceasing intercession to God on their behalf. Let me just ask you, who does that sound like to you? Salvation in the midst of judgment. Grace in the midst of this constant sin through a mediator. Ultimately, isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ? That's who he is. There's one mediator between God and man. One mediator between God and man who has to be perfectly obedient, perfectly holy in order to be that mediator because we're just that sinful and God is just that holy. But we have that mediator, don't we? In and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's press on from Israel's need for a savior to number two, Saul's need for a savior. As you can see from your outline, several ways that Saul disobeys God, disobedience in offering a sacrifice, disobedience in ruling over Israel, and disobedience in killing God's enemies. We'll walk through them in great detail, although some of them I'm going to have to skip through and summarize. We'll start with A, disobedience in offering a sacrifice. If you would look at chapter 13, verse 5. 1 Samuel 13, verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Notice with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, no kidding, they're in total trouble for the people were hard pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords to the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilead and all the people followed him, trembling. What's going on here? Well, obviously the Philistines have put together this massive army. I mean, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and soldiers like the sand of the seashore. So of course the people are terrified and trembling. Rather than gearing up to fight, they, they hide themselves in caves and holes and tombs and cisterns, scared for their lives. Now you have to remember, what exactly did the people want in their king? 
1 Samuel 8.20, so he might judge them, go out for them, and fight their battles for them. Well, here you go, Saul. Here's a battle for you to fight. What does Saul do? Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering. Before I read on, I want you to know just how clear Samuel's instructions were to Saul. So if you would keep your finger here and flip back to chapter 10, verse 8. We're looking at Samuel's instructions on how this should play out to Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. Samuel says to Saul, here's the instructions. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to do what? Samuel is coming down to Saul to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Why would Samuel do that? Because Samuel's the prophet, the priest, and the mediator. So Samuel says to Saul, seven days you shall wait. You shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Here's the question. Is Samuel's command unclear? Is he ambiguous as to what Saul should do? How would you evaluate the command? It's crystal clear, isn't it? Wait until I get there. I'm the priest. I'll make the sacrifice and I will show you what you should do. Wait until I get there. Okay, now flip back to chapter 13, verse 9. Look at what Saul does. No doubt because he's terrified about the army that's in front of him. Chapter 13, verse 9. But Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Now listen to this. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Why is God doing that? Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now make the connection. Because what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It means to be a man who obeys God's commands, which the Bible argues for all over the place, including Jesus in the New Testament. John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and make myself known to him. Which means to love God is to believe God is to trust God, is to obey God. 
is to serve God with all your heart all the days of your life. Because those are all synonyms in the Bible. To love God is to believe in God, is to trust God, is to obey God, is to serve God with all your heart all the days of your life. But Saul does not obey God because Saul does not have a heart after God's own heart. Instead, he disobeys God and then he blames Samuel for it rather than just taking responsibility for his own sin and repenting of it. So that's disobedience in offering a sacrifice. Now let's look at B, disobedience in ruling over Israel. As you can see from my outline, I've listed four ways that Saul fails to lead Israel, which I'm not going to read, but I'm going to skip through and give you the highlights. But the context is this massive battle against the Philistines who have incredible numbers, right? 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and soldiers like the sand of the seashore. So the people are terrified. And certainly one of the reasons why they're so scared is because they don't have any weapons, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 19. It says, because there was no blacksmith to be found in all the land of Israel. So where are the blacksmiths? Well, verse 20, every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare axe and sickle. And of course, their weapons as well. So what's the result? Look at verse 22. On the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand, notice, of any of the people. Now, let me just ask you, what kind of king fails to put swords and spears in the hands of his soldiers for the battle? That's number one, not providing them weapons to fight. Number two, not trusting the Lord. This one comes by way of comparison. Because in the midst of this battle, Jonathan takes his armor bearer and he heads out to fight the Philistines, meaning Jonathan and his arm bearer alone. The two of them head out to fight the Philistines, which sounds absolutely crazy. But look at his orientation. First Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come. Let us go over to the garrison of this uncircumcised, so to the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving notice by many or by few. What is Jonathan doing? Well, he's doing what Saul should be doing. That's what he's doing, right? Trusting God. No matter how many enemies are in front of him, 10 or 10,000, or how big his armory is, 10 or 10,000. Either way, there's absolutely nothing to fear. Why? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake. Chapter 12, verse 22, we just read that. So Jonathan essentially declares Psalm 20, verse 7, for some trust in chariots and some in horses. But I will trust in the name of the Lord my God, which he does, and kills 20 men. And he sends the whole camp into panic, meaning the Philistine camp is now in chaos. But that's Jonathan, not Saul. So Saul is disobedient in ruling over Israel by not providing weapons and by not trusting God. 
Now, number three, by not making wise decisions. Here's the sad part, because Saul doesn't even know that Jonathan is out fighting the Philistines. He's unaware of that. So it's not until he sees all the commotion that he even gets involved. But verse 23 gives us a summary. So the Lord saved Israel that day. But as you can imagine, as a result of fighting, the men are starving. So what does Saul do? He lays an oath on the soldiers to not eat any of the food. So despite their unbelievable hunger, he calls for a fast. But unfortunately, Jonathan doesn't get the memo and starts eating honey fresh off the land. And just listen to to Jonathan's comments on Saul's leadership. Look at chapter 14, verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? Oh, how much better it would have been if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat of the Philistines has not been great. So Saul doesn't provide weapons, doesn't trust God, doesn't make wise decisions, and worst of all, number four, he doesn't protect his faithful son. Instead, the wicked Israelites have to do that for him. Because of Saul's foolishness, he declared, Cursed is any man who eats food this day. Well, Jonathan obviously ate the honey. So when Saul finally calls the priest to make a sacrifice and inquires of the Lord whether to fight or to not fight, God is silent. He doesn't respond to him. So Saul's conclusion, it must be because Jonathan ate the honey. So surely my son, my faithful son, who trusted God and won the battle, should die. And the irony here is that the Israelites, who did the exact same thing as Jonathan, pouncing on the livestock and disobediently eating it with the blood still in it, are the ones who deliver Jonathan from death. Look at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair on his head that should fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. What's the point of all these little narratives? The point is that Saul's a disobedient king who's not ruling and reigning over his people in a way that glorifies God. He doesn't shepherd them. He doesn't provide for them. He doesn't protect them. He doesn't care for them. And worst of all, he doesn't trust God and he doesn't obey God. Why is that? Why does he not obey God? Because he doesn't have a heart after God's own heart. Which means he's not a king who obeys God, follows God, or walks in God's way. Which becomes absolutely evident and obvious in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So see Saul's disobedience in killing God's enemies. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noticed, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Here's God's command. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. 
Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now let me just pause for a moment. Because I'm guessing that some of you are struggling when you hear that. Meaning, how could a loving God possibly command Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey? How can a loving God possibly command that? Well, because God is not just a loving God. He's a just God. So not just love, but justice. Notice what the text says, right? He says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. These are a disobedient people. These are enemies of God. They're evil, wicked, and they're disobedient. They're enemies of God. In fact, if you fast forward in Israel's history, another Amalek, Amalekite, another Amalekite, Haman, will show up in the book of Esther and will try to completely annihilate, wipe out all of the Israelites. Why? Because the Amalekites are evil, evil, wicked, and disobedient, and they deserve to be judged for their wickedness. So yes, God is love, but God is also just, which means that the wicked will be judged. You need to understand, right? There are good guys and there are bad guys. Good guys are with God. They obey God. They love God. They live for the glory of God. And bad guys disobey God. They're enemies of God. And they will be judged. When Jesus returns, judgment is going to take place. Those who are with Jesus will be with him for all eternity. Those who are against Jesus will be judged for all eternity. There are good guys and there are bad guys. One other thing I want you to notice. Notice how clear the command is. Let me read verse 3 again. Now go and strike... Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse four. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell him 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Skip down to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Malachites from Havilah as far as Shur, east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people by the edge of the sword. Notice verse 9. But Saul and the people, Saul and the people, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves, the lambs and all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has not turned back from following me, for he has turned back from following me or obeying me and has not performed my commandments. 
And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose up early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, listen to this. Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. So yes, he disobeys God, but still glories in the victory that God provides by building a monument to himself. Verse 13. So Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to Samuel, blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, they brought them from the Amalekites. Thou, who is the they? It's the people. So Saul's the king, but now he's blaming the people. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Verse 17, though you are little in your eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amaleks to destruction. Oh, no. Here we go again. Verse 21. But the people, of course, the people, but the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Verse 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great of delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. God has rejected you from being king. Here's the question. Why is God rejecting Saul from being king? It's because he doesn't have a heart after God's own heart. And as a result, he doesn't obey God. So how would you describe all that Saul is doing? Well, I would say he's doing everything by his own effort and for his own glory rather than by God's grace and for God's glory. So his heart is completely in the wrong place, which is why he's building a monument to himself. I mean, can you even imagine thinking your enemies are being destroyed just because you're so tall, tan, and terrific? Oh, I would suggest we do this all the time. Thinking that our success 
is the result of our own clarity, courage, and conviction. That somehow we're better than other people. We're smarter than other people, more clever, more convincing. We're just more special than all those other people. When really it's just God's goodness and God's grace to us. But what's the issue? The issue is Saul's disobedience because the command was crystal clear. Verse 3, devote to destruction all that the Malachites are and all that they have. But did he do it? No, he disobeyed. And verse 22 couldn't be more clear. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than sacrifices. So as a result, Saul is judged by God and rejected as king. And I want you to understand it is far worse than just being removed from the throne. Instead, it means being rejected for all eternity because Saul never repents. That's why he chases David around during the rest of the book, trying to kill God's anointed king. And it's why he practices divination, 1 Samuel chapter 28, and why he dies by the sword of the Philistines, 1 Samuel 31, and has his head cut clean off. Why is that? Because Saul is a seed of the serpent. He's an enemy of God, just like Agag. By the way, what happens to Agag? Does Agag get set free? And Saul get punished? No. Look at verse 32. Chapter 15, verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, joyfully, super happy. Why is he happy? He's saying, surely the bitterness of death is past. It's over. I'm not going to be killed. Verse 33. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So be clear. Agag and Saul are judged because both Agag and Saul are enemies of God. Just think about that. Agag, a person who's clearly disobedient to God, has nothing to do with religion, spiritual things, He's not near to God at all. He's judged, but so is Saul, who is near to God, close to the people of God. You can be far from God. You can be near to God. But if you don't have a heart for God, seen most clearly in obedience, then you will be judged because you're an enemy of God. Both are disobedient to God with lives that are characterized. Why did I go through the narrative from 12 to 15? Saul's life is characterized by disobedience all the way to the end of the book. So as we transition to number three, our need for a savior, let me just ask, how is any of this helpful? Well, I think it's helpful in a number of ways. For starters, it helps us to see just how sinful we really are. Because we're no better than the Israelites or Saul. 
We're just as sinful and just as disobedient, constantly forgetting the goodness of God and consistently disobeying God's commands. So we desperately need a king after God's own heart who isn't wicked, evil, or disobedient or constantly blame-shifting his sin onto other people like Adam or Agag or Saul. But also... One who is so much greater than Jonathan or David, who, yes, had a heart after God's own heart, but also stumbled with his own sins of adultery and murder. In fact, you could easily ask, what's the difference between Saul and David? Because both sinned badly, both clearly disobeyed God's commands. What's the difference? Well, you have to remember David repented. David repented. Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And David pleaded for God to give him a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him, to cast him not away, but to restore and to redeem him. So David looked forward in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed God. Because he knew, A, that we need an obedient king. And Jesus is that king. I mean, all you have to do is read through the gospel of John to see it. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do God's will and to accomplish God's work. So that which sustained Jesus during his entire earthly ministry was to walk in obedience to his loving heavenly father. John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or John 12, 49 to 50, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but that which the Father has commanded me to speak. John 14, 31, I do, I do as the Father commanded me. Why did Jesus do as the Father commanded him? So that the world might know that he loved the Father. Or you could say that he had a heart after God's own heart. Which Jesus proved not only in his life, of obedience, but in his willingness to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what's the result? Philippians 2 says, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. That's right, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the only man fully after God's own heart, the only one who never sinned, the only one who perfectly obeyed, perfectly endured, even when it was his father's will for him to be devoted to destruction on the cross of Calvary. Jesus' obedience had everything to do with him being an adequate substitute for your salvation. Do you understand? He's the mediator that we need. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who had to be obedient in his life and in his death for our salvation. Absolutely essential. Which leads to a very simple application. That as a result of our faith in Christ, or you could say as a result of us being aligned with King Jesus, B, we need an obedient People, We need to be an obedient people. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to 1 John chapter 2. 
First John, if you go to Revelation and move your way back, First John chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to remind you where I started this morning. I started by asking you the question, what is the single most important sign or evidence that you have truly come to faith in the Lord Jesus? And I told you how Jonathan Edwards answered by saying that godly practice or obedience to God's commands is the single most important sign of God's grace in a person's life. That's great. But you could easily say, who cares what Jonathan Edwards says? And if that's what you're thinking, I'm proud of you. Who cares what he says? And you know what? Who cares what Steve Thiel says? Let me tell you what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible answer that question? 1 John chapter 2. Look at what it says in verse 3. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. So John, what's the best way to know for sure that I've truly come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you keep his commandments then you will know that you have come to know him. If we keep his commands and we walk in obedience, not perfectly, but consistently and increasingly. And we know that it's not perfection because John tells us that. Look at verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here's the word of God. You need to know it. You need to believe it. You need to live according to it so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, implied you will sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. So it's not obeying God perfectly, it's obeying God characteristically. Because verse 3 says, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Then he clarifies. Verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What is the single most important evidence that a person has truly believed in the Lord Jesus? It's obedience to God's commands. And please listen to me when I say I'm not talking about churchianity or jumping through religious hoops, or your church attendance, or token given, or one-time mission trip, or a single service project. No, I'm talking about slow, faithful, ongoing, consistent perseverance, obedience, all in the same direction. So embarking on a lifelong journey of obeying God's commands and persevering in the faith. So let me just ask, How about you this morning? Is your life 
characterized by obedience to God's commands. Is your life characterized by obedience to God's commands? Now, some of you are here this morning, and you already know that you're not believing in the Lord Jesus. You might not even care about any of that. But I want you to know that God's judgment is still coming. And it's just as sure as it was on the Philistines and on Saul and on Agag and the Amalekites. So I want you to understand this morning that God is a just God who will not be mocked. So he will absolutely judge all those who stand outside of faith in the Lord Jesus. So please believe me when I say judgment is coming. Somebody is absolutely going to be judged for your sin. The question is who? Is it going to be you? Or is it going to be the Lord Jesus? Either way, there's going to be a judgment on your sin. It's just who's going to pay for it. You or the Lord Jesus, which is the glory of God's infinite grace that he freely offers to you, even this morning, despite a lifetime of sin and disobedience, that you can still be forgiven. You can still be delivered. You can still be exonerated by allowing God to put the guilt and the shame and the punishment that your sin rightly deserves on the only one who doesn't deserve it. The Lord Jesus, our sinless Savior, Oh, I appeal to you to trust in Jesus, to repent, to believe, to be saved, and to walk in newness of life, obedient to King Jesus. Embrace him as your Savior and obey him as your Lord. Now, to those of you who are here professing faith in Christ, but if you're honest, about your life are only offering up sacrifices of minimal church attendance, token service, and nominal Christianity by definition. Meaning it's Christianity in name only rather than wholehearted obedience to God's commands. Oh, I so desperately want to warn you this morning. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to see right through your facade of religiosity. And he's going to say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you disobedient people. I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 23. I do not want that to happen to you. So let me call you to a repentance that is marked by true obedience and not just a facade. Oh, I pray that God would awaken you to the horror of your situation and cause you to own your sin, to truly repent. Repentance means you turn from sin and you walk in righteousness. Oh, I plead with you to put your faith firmly and squarely in the Lord Jesus, demonstrated by a radical shift in your life where you're diligently avoiding sin and you're joyfully practicing righteousness, walking consistently and progressively in God's commands. And to you, dear believer, 
I'm wondering how you're responding to God's word in 1 Samuel this morning. How are you responding to Jesus' example of radical obedience to the Father, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? And how he calls us, commands us, that we would walk in the same manner in which he walked. Because we're being transformed day by day into his image. We're being given the gift of his spirit. And we're being called to walk in radical obedience to God's commands. How are you responding to that this morning? Let me ask it this way. Are there commands that you're currently kind of just avoiding? Instructions in God's word that you're kind of glossing over. Or relegating to the category of optional. How about the command to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Holy and acceptable to the Lord, Romans 12.1. How about the command to owe nothing to anyone except to love them? Romans 13.8. How about the command that no corrupting talk should come out of our mouths, but only words that edify and build up Ephesians 4.29. Or that sexual immorality or any form of impurity should not even be named among those who profess the name of Christ, Ephesians 5.3. Or that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength, and that we should be making disciples of all the nations, boldly proclaiming the gospel in season and out of season with clarity, courage, and conviction? Or how about the command that we should give generously, systematically, sacrificially, and joyfully to the local church? Or how about the command that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you should do all for the glory of God. These are all commands given to us by God himself. So I'm just asking, how are you responding to this radical call to obedience? I pray that we would be those who diligently avoid all sin and joyfully practice all virtue That's what Jonathan Edwards called us to, right? Total obedience, not perfection, but that we're diligent, diligently avoiding all sin, joyfully practicing righteousness and knowing that God's commands are not burdensome for those who love the Lord Jesus and are living for his glory. I want you to be crystal clear. I'm not saying you should obey so that you can go to heaven. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm saying a heart that is so captivated with the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he took all your sins on himself and he paid the punishment that you rightly deserve so that you can be forgiven 
that you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. A heart after God's own heart that results in a deep desire to live for his glory, his honor, and his praise. Demonstrated most clearly in your obedience to God's commands. Just like Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Allow me to pray that we would be a people like that. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for First Samuel. Lord, I want to pray for every single person here. Lord, I recognize that there's some here who are wholeheartedly rejecting the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would work in their minds and in their hearts, that they would know that judgment is coming. I pray that you would be gracious and kind to open their eyes, that they might see the reality of their sin and the glorious offer before them in the Lord Jesus. Lord, be gracious. Allow them to repent and believe and be saved. Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who are deceived. They're near to God, near to the people of God. But if they're honest, they don't have a heart after God's own heart demonstrated by a life, yes, church attendance, but then the rest of the week live for the world. Lord, I pray that you be gracious and kind to open eyes, touch hearts, Make it clear that you call us to repent, to turn from our sin as a result of Christ's finished work on the cross and that we're called to walk in obedience to him. Lord, I pray for believers here. Convict us. Lord, if there's commandments that we are just ignoring, help us to not have an orientation that says, you know what? I'm good enough. Oh, Lord, give us grace to repent of that attitude. These are your commandments given to us that we might be a people who live gloriously different than the world around us. Cause us to delight in the Lord Jesus. Give us a heart after your own heart that wants to, desires, is diligent to do all that we can to live lives out of love for you that brings glory to your name. Lord, I pray that you'd work by the power of your spirit, that we would delight ourselves in the Lord, that you might give us the desires of our heart. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.